John chapter 13. It's Earth Day today. (laughs) Talk about your pagan holidays, but let's not. Um, (laughs) A day to recognize the Earth. I don't know. I'm looking forward to the day of Christ, actually, myself. Paul said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Keep that in mind. The truth is something bigger than the planet is going on here. Something greater than earth, something eternal. And at the beginning of John chapter 13, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, and I love how John writes this, He loved them to the end. Now before the feast of the Passover, John writes, before the feast of the Passover. Now that's important because as this evening on in John 13 gets underway, and it is the evening where Jesus would share Passover with the apostles, it is that same evening where Jesus would translate Pesach, the Passover, into communion, as we understand it, the Lord's Supper. How He would give significance to those elements of, of wine and of bread unlike anything they had heard He would bring it to fulfillment, to fruition on that night. And yet John doesn't talk about that. It is the Last Supper, but he doesn't mention the Last Supper. The only thing we hear that he mentions is just that one line, before the feast of the Passover. So prior to them getting into the feast, some things are about to take place here. Now, just for explanation, Leviticus 23, verse 5, the Lord said, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. That's the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. At twilight is the Lord's Passover. So when is twilight exactly? It's not when the vampires come out. Twilight, Ben Ha Arbayim, it means between the settings. Literally, twilight is between the settings. That is between the settings of the sun. Twilight is not the rising of the moon. It's between the settings of the sun. So when the sun sets, that, according to Jewish thought, is twilight. And you know the Jewish day begins in the evening. Begins at twilight, the the next day. As the sun begins going down. And so the the rabbis would even say late afternoon-ish. So from late afternoon to late afternoon. That's between the settings of the sun and the Passover was celebrated in that period of time, which explains to us how on one evening Jesus could share the Passover feast with His apostles and yet on the next day be the Passover sacrifice and it's still between the settings of the sun. Same day. And He, as the synoptic writers tell us, He longed, He looked forward to sharing this feast with the apostles. But what we call the Last Supper, that final Passover, shared by Jesus the Twelve and uh, Leonardo da Vinci, apparently he was there, I don't know how he got he had, you know, had them pose for the painting, would have been on the eve of Nisan the 14th, 
As long as the Passover lamb was sacrificed prior to the setting of the sun on the next day, the following day, which was still Nisan the 14th. So do you understand? Does that make some sense there? Jesus, Christ our Passover, in perfect keeping of the law, would be killed, sacrificed, before the next sunset. That is on Jesus' mind as we open up to John chapter 13. And yet, unless we knew that, unless you had some awareness of that, you might not realize it at all. Based on what He does here, what He says, how focused He is on the twelve, all of them, and not on Himself. If I knew I was about to be sacrificed, if I knew the bell was tolling for me before the next sunset, I don't think I'd be focused on everybody else. I'm sorry. But Jesus is focused on His boys. He's concerned for them. He's loving them. And John tells us He loved them to the end. And we have come now to the end of Jesus' public ministry. No more addressing the crowds. Everything from here on out is direct. It's between Him and the apostles. Save one little conversation He's going to have with Pilate. He is in final training mode. And from chapter 13 through chapter 21 of the Gospel according to John, these last nine chapters are, in my mind, the best discipleship training manual in the entire Bible. If you want to shore up your following, if you want to strengthen your discipleship, if you want to know how to live for Jesus and with Jesus and be about Jesus in your life, then you spend your time right here. John 13 through John 21. And that's what we're going to be thinking about over the next few weeks as we finish up the Gospel of John. The Spirit through John has been bringing us to this very point. Out of death and into discipleship. Out of earth and into eternity. And that's really what the Gospel of John is all about. We hear it in the seven I Am statements of Jesus. Let's consider those again. Follow the flow. Think about the seven statements. Two we haven't even heard yet. We won't get to those until chapters 14 and 15. But Jesus would say, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. That's His presentation to the world. Like manna in the wilderness, I am the bread of life. The bread of life that was poured out for all who would receive, who would eat of that bread and drink of that blood. Well, that's me, Jesus says. And so that's His presentation to the world. I am the light of the world, He says. Well, that's His revelation to the world. But again, it's kind of a global mindset. Bread of life, light of the world. I am the door of the sheep, He says. Well, that's His invitation to the world. I'm the door. you got to go through Me. Come on through Me. He says, I am the good shepherd. Well, that's His combination of Two folds. The fold of Israel and the other fold. All the Gentiles who would come to faith in Jesus. That's us. I like that. I told you, I'm the other fold. You're the other fold that He's bringing along. He's the good shepherd for all who would come to Him. So in those four I Am statements, we get this this clarity of Jesus to the entire world. It's global in His speech, in what He's saying. It's broad-ranging. And then... We turn a corner. 
We find him in John chapter 11 talking to Martha. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, now he's talking to a follower. And in that I am statement, Jesus declares the disciples' faith. The disciples' faith. It's our faith. The resurrection and the life. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the centerpiece of our faith. The cornerstone, as it were, of our salvation. His resurrection, which brings about my resurrection, your resurrection. That's discipleship stuff. And he directs it, of course, to Martha, a disciple. Then he'll say in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. Who's he talking to there? His disciples. At that point, he's talking to the eleven, one has left. So while I am the resurrection and the life is the disciples' faith, I am the way, the truth, and the life, well, that's the disciples' message. That's the gospel. That's the message that we as followers of Jesus carry. He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. And no man comes to the Father yet but through Him. That's our message. Our faith is in the resurrection. Our message is that He is the one and only way. And then in John chapter 15, He will say, I am the true vine. Well, that's the disciples' power. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You want to do it right? Stay connected to Me. You want strength for the, for the journey? Stay connected to me. You want power for what I have called you to do? you got to be connected to me. You will not work it out. Glenn and I had a conversation earlier today about this. About, as we've talked about in here many times, the desire to stay simple and stay connected to Jesus. And as we talked back and forth, we were saying, you know... One of the things that I am so thankful for in this fellowship is that we're allowed to ask the question, what if God was right? What if all I really have to do is seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to me? What if I really lived believing that? What if all we really did as a church was the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer and fellowship? Does that work? We keep thinking there are so many other ways that we have to make this thing work. We got to call in the experts. We got to read this, go to the seminars. We got to read the books. We've got to do it like business. We got to have a business plan. What if you don't? What if you just pray instead of plan? What then? And I love that Jesus gives us the freedom in following Him just to come to Him. To be connected to Him. He is the vine, we are the branches. We'll get to that again in chapter 15. But as you watch this through these I am statements of Jesus, He begins by saying I am to the world and then He turns and starts to say I am to His disciples. We see it in the seven signs. And I know I've been over those several times too. I want to make sure you're getting this in the Gospel of John. Seven signs that you may believe. Water to wine. Healing the nobleman's son. Healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Feeding the 5,000. Walking on water. Healing the blind man. And raising Lazarus. The seven signs which are, listen, which are signs for the non-believer. John gives these signs not to disciples so much. 
but to those who might become disciples, non-believers, to see who Jesus is, to receive this explanation of God. But now, now we're about to converge upon the greatest sign. This in a class all by itself, not even listed among the other seven signs, it stands alone, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, get this, the resurrection, that's the one for the believer. The other signs are for the non-believer, to consider God, to see how He works, to understand His power, to see that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. But the resurrection of Christ Jesus Himself, that's the one that calls forth faith. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, Paul writes, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you really don't believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, you will not get to the Father. Well, Jesus loved them to the end. Before the Feast of Passover, knowing that His hour had come. That hour, as we've been watching throughout John, He's been saying, my hour is not yet, it's not yet time, it's not yet my hour, it's not yet my hour. Now it is. Knowing His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, and John knows that for a fact, He loved them to the end. And fellow disciples... He's still doing that. To the end. Telos in the Greek. Telos means achievement, fulfillment. To the fulfillment, to the consummation, you might say. He loved them to the very fulfillment of God's plan. And when John wrote that, it's amazing to me, telos, he uses that word. I think the Spirit was reminding John of exactly what Jesus said on the cross. John 19.30, He said, It is finished! Fulfilled! Completed! Done! It is finished in the Greek is tetelestai. And tetelestai comes from the root word telos. He loved them to the end. And Jesus said, it is finished. He loved them. What John is saying here is he loved them right to the cross. He loved them to the very end of his ministry. To the fulfillment. And that's especially poignant because we're about to see them do stupid stuff. We're about to watch the apostles struggle with faith. One betrays him outright. Another one betrays him by running away. The rest of them all flee. It's an absolute and total mess. They're going to desert him. Scatter. Leave him to his enemies. And yet John says he loved them to the end. Which means all the way to his final breath. He was loving them, loving them, loving them in spite of the mess they had just made in the next 12 to 18 hours. We've got to get that. We've got to understand because Jesus still does it. He still loves to the end, to the fulfillment. And again, this is bigger than the planet. This is greater than global. This is eternity. And so as we enter into this final section of the Gospel of John, the disciple must realize... I'm going to give you some musts tonight. Some absolute statements. And that's the first one. 
the disciple must realize he loves you to the end. You must realize He loves you to the end. He's going to explain how over the next few chapters that He continues to love us and will love us right up to the very end. Such is His love that He will, He has determined to see you through. Are you having a hard time right now, tonight? Guess what? Jesus still loves you. Have you just done something that's abjectly disappointing in your life? Disappointing to yourself because you know it's got to be disappointing to Him. Guess what? He still loves you. Followers of Jesus, have we made a mess of things? Have we scattered? Have we betrayed? Have we fallen apart? Guess what? He still loves you. You must realize that. I think of all the things I'm going to tell you, all the must tonight, that's the most important. You must realize. Because if we don't realize His love... If we don't realize His faithfulness, we will burn out, bummed out, on the treadmill of self-doubt. We'll fall apart. I see too many Christians falling apart for this simple reason. They have forgotten how much He loves them. And instead have focused themselves on how poorly they love Him. Yes, we're called to love Him, but the primary truth is He loves us. He loves us. He said in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age, He does not divorce us. He does not walk away from us. He does not leave us in the lurch. He loves us. My confidence, therefore, is not in me. It is not in the strength of my faithfulness. It is in Christ Jesus to the end. He loves me to the end. As the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. To the end. The disciple must realize he loves to the end. And the next story graphically emphasizes this. Verse 2, during supper. The devil, already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel, with which he was girded. Remember, this, this is knowing all things. Jesus knows all things. He knows what they're about to do. And he's washing their feet. So he came to Simon, verse 6. And he said to him, Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said, Never shall you wash my feet. I'm Peter, the dumb. (laughs) Peter who speaks my, my mind, however small it might be. Simon Peter said, Well, Jesus answered, he said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Don't you just love Peter? It's always more than enough. It's always too much. He always pushes it right over the cliff. And Jesus said to him, 
He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Stunning to me that at that time he's washing Judah's feet. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now listen, the context of this story of the foot washing, according to the other gospel writers, is they are arguing over their ascendancy. They're arguing over their greatness. That's the point. They're at the Last Supper. Amazing that they get into an argument over who are the great ones among the twelve. Isn't it enough to be among the twelve? I mean, to be chosen to walk with Jesus, you got to see who's greatest among you? I mean, it's kindergarten stuff. It's unbelievable. And we still do it. And that's the background to Jesus pausing girding himself with a towel and beginning to just wash their feet. Clearly he understood in that moment words would not be enough to get their attention. He needed to show them. And before they came to know just how lame they truly were, Jesus redirects their thinking. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Now we're going to come back to this whole story on Sunday. That's why I moved through it so quickly there. But tonight I just want you to see one thing. Notice how Jesus owns His position among them. He's just washed their feet. He's just shown them a humility that is stunning even in their own eyes. They're taken aback by what He's doing. And then He says, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. Let's be clear, boys. I just washed your feet, am your Lord. I am the teacher. I am rabbi and master. There's no question as to the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And my friends, among His followers, there must never be any question about the authority of Jesus. I've gotten more bold about this over the years. That is the deity of Christ. The divine nature of Jesus. Who He is. And His right to complete and total authority over all things created. Over all things made. He is the Lord. He is the Master. And we got to know that. And not lower Him on the rung of the Trinity if there were one. A rung, that is. Matthew 23, verse 8, Jesus said, Do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He's not saying Abba there, he's saying Pater. Don't give anyone the title. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. 
For one is your leader, that is Christ. Second thing to note, the disciple must resign. The disciple must resign. Resign from what? Resign from authority over your life. It's time to turn in our resignations, gang. I am not the boss of me. I am not in charge of my life, neither are you. Now, we like to think we are. And people in the world strive to be master of my castle. But you're not. I'm not. We're servants of one thing or another, slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness, but we're not masters of anything. It's a facade. And so we are called by the Lord, by His Word, to resign from that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, little g, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, that is, many who judge, many who are in positions of authority, many who would rule, yet for us, he says, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. And so even while Jesus is teaching them what it means to be a bondservant, what it means to serve one another, to humble yourself, He still declares in the midst of that, don't forget that I am your Lord. I am your Master. And for us, I think He would say, be careful with titles. Watch out. Titles feel really good. Titles puff us up. Be careful. And I would appreciate it if you would just call me Rick. I answer to that. It's so funny when kids come over to play with my kids and they call me Pastor Rick in my own home. I don't don't even know what to do with that. Pastor Rick, can we have some cereal? I don't know what Pastor Rick says, but Rick says, sure, go ahead. (laughs) Careful with titles. At our very best, all we can do is imitate Him, who is Lord and King. Well, verse 18, so Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now he moves forward. After washing their feet, he now begins to directly tell them there's a betrayer among us. And he quotes, you may recall from our study on Sunday, Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, he's kicked me in the gut. He hurt me. Think of that. This is, this is not theology. This is, this is personal. Judas hurt Jesus. Do you know that? It wasn't just, well, he was a betrayer, so he, you know, took his assignment, did it well, did what he was supposed to do, landed me on the cross, and I resurrected, and we were done with him. No. Jesus wouldn't quote this, wouldn't say this. My close friend in whom I trusted has kicked me. Judas hurt Jesus. Really hurt him. Three primary prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures talking about the betrayal of Judas. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13 gives us the price of the betrayal. Those 30 pieces of silver. 
Jeremiah 19 verses 1 through 11 talk about the potter's field where that money would be thrown, where that field would be purchased. And we went through a study in that back in Jeremiah. It's fascinating to me how the prophet called that out. But this third one, Psalm 41 verse 9, is the portrait of a friend. And as we talked about on Sunday, that Judas conundrum, why Jesus would choose Judas, it's answered in the love of Christ to the very end. That He loved Judas to the end. To the full extent of His love. He knew Judas would betray Him. But He chose Judas. Not as betrayer, but as friend. He offered Judas, the betrayer, the son of perdition, the son of waste, He offered him the hand of friendship. That's what Jesus was doing in choosing Jesus among the apostles. And again, we covered this, but I don't want you to miss this. Or misunderstand the reason that Judas was called in among the apostles was to give him every chance to know the love of Christ. Every chance not to betray Him. Every opportunity to know Jesus and to fall in love with Jesus. But Judas, for his part, never resigned himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Or even to the friendship of Jesus. And so he hurt Jesus. Verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. He doesn't say I am He. He says you may believe, ego a me. You may believe that I am. I'm telling you this now. I'm explaining this betrayal before it happens, so that you will know. What does this tell us? It tells us Jesus is no victim. Jesus didn't fall prey to Judas' schemes. He was not caught off guard. He's not the victim. He is the victor. And a couple of things here that that stuns me. This will cause two things to happen among the disciples after the fact. Jesus saying, I'm telling you this now so that later, so that afterward... So that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am. Well, what does that mean? It means they will have realization of His divine authority. That after the betrayal, they would look back and see Judas in that, see what took place and realize, and Jesus knew it all along. He told us before it happened. He explained it to us ahead of time. And so the apostles would have realization of His divine authority. As Psalm 98 verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. And John would make sure that you don't miss this in these last chapters of the Gospel of John that Jesus is in complete control. He even calls out the betrayer. Every step along the way, Jesus is the circus master over all this insanity. He's the one directing each moment and causing each thing to happen. He never gives that authority up. In complete submission to the Father, He has total authority over His crucifixion. And it's amazing. And He sees this in Judas. He calls it out. So that after the fact, they will have realization of His divine authority. But there's something else that I believe they would gain because Jesus took the time to tell them ahead of time. And that is emancipation from bitterness toward Judas. By telling them ahead, 
by indicating that he knew and this was part of the deal, he would free them from malice toward Judas, anger, bitterness, hatred. This was my call, Jesus might say. And so as John and the other evangelists refer to Judas, talk about the betrayal, you'll notice there is no malice in any of their language. They don't write Judas the jerk. Judas that pagan, heathen, no good, no account, killer of our life. They never say that. They report as it happened without any malice. Who has betrayed you? And pause for a moment and think about that. Who's turned on you? Who has hurt you in your life? Is there someone for whom you right now, tonight, still harbor bitterness? Third thing about the disciple, the disciple must release. We must release. You can't hold on to this stuff. Betrayal and resentment and bitterness... The call of the follower of Jesus Christ is to leave that bitterness and to move forward. Not to sit in it, not to seethe in it, not to wallow in it. And you might say, well, how can I? Let me tell you my story, you might say. Let's discuss this for a moment, Rick. Let me tell you how badly I was treated, how horrifically I was taken advantage of. And you're telling me right now that as a follower of Jesus, I just have to release this stuff? Let it go? Yes. How? How is it possible? By the authority of Jesus Christ. Don't go theological on me. By the authority of Jesus who is the great emancipator. He who revealed His own betrayal ahead of time. That we might believe in Him and be released to follow Him. Let me let Paul explain this. Ephesians 4.31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Okay? Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other. How? How, Paul? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, the key to upsetting the apple cart of bitterness, the key to turning over that that stuff, to getting it out of your life, out of your heart, and leaving it behind, is looking to the forgiveness that Jesus has given you. Because the reality is, Judas may have kicked Jesus, but so have I. And the sin in my life hurts Jesus. And yet He forgave me. If He can forgive me, then suddenly I find I am released to forgive others. With that same forgiveness. Philippians 3.13, that's why Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of of God in Christ Jesus. I can run to the day of the Lord, to the day of Christ. I can reach out for Jesus and not worry about all the things past, all the hurts, all the wounds. It doesn't affect me anymore. Why? Because He's forgiven me. And that forgiveness is so all-encompassing in my life. It is the thing that carries me right on into eternity, gang. Every last thing. Sit down and start making a sin list. 
Well, he hasn't forgiven me that much, has he? Start making a list. And that's just the stuff you remember. And he washed it away. He says, now look, look what I did. You feel the love? How can I turn around and be bitter towards someone else when the Lord, who has every right to be bitter toward me, chooses instead to love me to the very end? You see how that works? And if you're feeling that bitterness, if it starts to bubble up against somebody, something, some situation, man, return to the forgiveness of Jesus. You just stop and think about, oh, how He loves me. Oh, oh, how He loves me. How He loves us all. Verse 20, Jesus went on, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send, receives Me. And he who receives Me, receives Him who sent Me. And now He's starting to open the door to the disciples becoming apostles, sent ones. Men who are sent by the Lord, sent out on mission. They now are sent. And as the apostles are sent and received, Jesus is received. Just as when Jesus was sent and received, God was received. What is he saying here? Listen, fellow disciples, this is what we might call the unbroken line of the gospel. And it began with the coming of Jesus. And it was passed along to the eleven, ultimately twelve, there would be an addition. And passed on then to the early believers who passed it on through family and through friends down the years, across the millennium, 2,000 years later, that line has been unbroken. The gospel is still spreading out. It's still going out. It's still, when I go, I go in His name. And if someone receives me, they receive Him who sent me. In the same way Jesus says, as you have received me who has sent, you receive God because you received me. The unbroken line. You bear that line. I carry that line forward in my life, which tells me, number four, are we on the fourth one? I think so. The disciple must represent. The disciple must represent because once I become a follower of Jesus Christ, it is no longer my name that I represent. It's His. It's no longer my reputation at stake. It's His. Luke 10.16, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. I read that. And I I mean, this this is one of those moments for me where I kind of shudder in my office chair. Where I shake in my boots. He who receives whomever I send receives me. I am his representative. What I do, where I go. Who I see, how I act, the very words I speak, the behavior that I yield. I've gotten on, over the years, the idea of Christians going to bars. Even for a hamburger. And I know there are a couple of places. There's one down in Coopville, there's one in Anacortes, there's one in Oak Harbor. Bars that just make the best food. Good stuff. I mean, man, the hamburgers and fries at this place, that place, or the other. Don't worry, I'm not going to name them tonight. <laughs> oh, I could. Man, but the food's so good, Rick. So we go there for lunch. It's great. Hey, fantastic. So you go there for lunch. 
My opinion, and this is just my opinion, and you feel free to completely disagree and walk out of here saying Rick is for the most part an idiot. That's okay. (laughs) But I wouldn't go in there if Jesus wouldn't go in there. And I really do struggle with that. There was a place our our staff was going to go out to lunch together today. We ended up having lunch in because we couldn't find anywhere we could go. (laughs) There was a place we were going to go and we stopped and thought about it and went, wait a minute though. After nine, that place just turns into a bar. That's all it is. Oh, Rick, come on. What's the problem with a bar? You, don't, you get on this alcohol thing. There are other sins, you know. <laughs> you hear you just admitted that that was a sin. <laughs> What's the big deal? Where I go has a direct reflection on Jesus Christ. If I'm going to claim that I belong to Him, if I'm His disciple, where I go, I'm representing I am, as Paul said, an ambassador of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if I am truly an ambassador of Christ, and we're back to what I said before, what if we just did what Jesus said? What if we really lived out what Scripture teaches us? What if I truly accepted the role of ambassador? How would that affect where I go and what I do? How would that change some of my decisions through the week? It's tough stuff, but it's real life, gang. And it's the appeal of Jesus to this world. He has chosen, His wisdom not mine, He has chosen to appeal to the world through His people. How do we reflect who Jesus is? We're His ambassadors. Carrying the line of the gospel. Verse 21, And when Jesus had said this, He became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one He was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved, probably John. We talked about that a bit on Sunday. You know how they're seated on those pillows around that triangular table of sorts or perhaps a U-shaped table called a triclinium. Three sides to it and you would sit around the sides low to the ground leaning on your left arm eating with your right hand and everyone's leaning left which means by the way that your feet would be right in someone's face. No wonder Jesus washed their feet. You guys stink, man. Where's the towel? Someone's got to do this. And they're all leaning around that table. (laughs) I love this. Peter gestures to the disciple whom Jesus loved and said, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Now, we don't know where Peter was seated. But if the disciple whom Jesus loved is right to Jesus' right, and Judas is probably right to his left, simply because of the dipping and the handing to him, that means that side's pretty much taken up, which means Peter's probably sitting across the table on the, you know, the seat of, of lowest uh, glory. Maybe that's why the conversation got started. Well, I'm not, I'm sitting over, how come John's, why does John get to sit beside Jesus? Well, I'm greater than John. <laughs> Judas is sitting over the, well, I, sure, he carries the money back box, but <laughs> I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, baby. I saw him light up. Come on, I'm greater. Peter is not on that side of the table. That's all we know. He's somewhere over there. So he says, John, John. <laughs> 
us who it is of whom he's speaking. And so he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And again, Judas is probably sitting to Jesus' left. Jesus in the seat of honor. He's the master of ceremonies, as it were, to his right. John to his left. Judas in that seat of highest honor. And the offer of the morsel, again, that show of friendship, to, to dip and to hand was to say, this, this is my bud. This is my friend. I love this guy. This man is important to me. He loved Judas to the end. To the very end. And you remember from our teaching, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. All the way to the very last moment, Jesus was still loving him. Matthew 26.50, Jesus said, Friend, what are you doing? Friend, what have you come for? He calls him friend. Verse 27, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And as we pointed out, Satan possessed Judas. But notice who it is who's giving the command. It's Jesus. See what I mean? He's still in charge. The devil himself has just invaded the spirit of Judas. He has just taken over Judas. And the devil doesn't say, Come on, let's go, let's get him. No, Jesus says, Now, what you do, do quickly. He dispatches Judas on the route of betrayal. And it is under the authority and the control of Jesus Christ. He is in full control of the moment. Verse 28. Now one of those reclining at the table, or now no one of those, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have in need of the feast, or else that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and as John so poetically writes, it was night. So they began at twilight, now it's night, the evening is progressing on, and it still amazes me that not one of the twelve even had an inkling that Judas was a schemer. Now now think about that. They had spent three years living together walking together, traveling together, sleeping out under the stars, sharing their lives together, sharing every meal together. They were there for the miracles. They were there for the teaching. They were there for the behind the scenes jokes and the laughter and the fellowship and the brotherhood. How many miles did their sandals share together all as one for three years and on this night nobody knew that Judas was the betrayer. Now, either the the other eleven were absolutely clueless wonders, which is probably the case, or something's not right here. Let me tell you something else that Jesus would instill in the apostles for the road ahead and must be something for all disciples. Number five, the disciple must recognize 
and this is even more critical in the days in which we live, the disciple of Jesus must recognize, that is, must have discernment. The eleven were clued out. For whatever reason. And I don't know why. They didn't see it either. You know, maybe Judas was just really good at what he did. Maybe he was just so sly nobody could pick it up. As John already told us, he'd been pilfering from the money box for the last three years. He had his own agenda from the beginning. He was evil and wicked all the way through. It was only at the last minute that Satan entered him. But before that, he was making his own wrong choices. No one caught it. So either he was really good, or they were really clued out, or maybe some mixture of both. But here, in this moment, we recognize they didn't see. They didn't know. The disciple must see. The disciple must recognize. Must have discernment. Paul calls it an actual spiritual gift. At 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, he talks about the gift of distinguishing or discerning of spirits. And hey, spirits can be just as much humanity as they are principality. When he says discerning, distinguishing spirits, that means sometimes you distinguish what someone's doing. What someone's thinking. What's going on. You parents, pray this prayer. Lord, entrap my child in anything they're doing wrong. It's a great prayer for a parent to pray. Lord, I pray my son or daughter will get caught. Early on. And get caught a lot. So they'll realize that making those choices are wrong choices. I pray for discernment as a dad to know when my kids are up to something. I catch Naomi at it all the time. She's a sneaker. Came out the other night. She's, she's sitting behind the counter, which from my bedroom door, when you walk out my bedroom door, you can, you can look across the room and, and the kitchen is just over there and the counter is there. And I, I see her, she's got something, but as I come walking out, it's like this. She's looking around. What you got there, Naomi? Bottle of root beer. Root beer? We're a healthy family. I don't even know how that got in the house. Probably her mother. (laughs) Distinguishing spirits, discerning spirits, is not just discerning spirits in the heavenly places. Not just being aware when something is not right, when something evil is afoot, when there is a principality nearby, when there are demons present. Yeah, we need to discern those things. But discerning spirits means discerning among brothers and sisters and discerning in the world what's going on. It's walking with wisdom. It's being shrewd as a follower of Jesus Christ. The disciple must recognize, must develop discernment. If you are not a discerning person, pray for it. I've told you before, that's my number one prayer. Is that I would have the gift of discernment. More than any other gift, I seek the gift of discernment. I want to know what's going on. And not to be paranoid or, or, or have malice or bitterness, but, but to be wise. In these last days. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 verse 29. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be on the alert. He's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He says, be wise. Keep your eyes open. Be discerning. Because there are wolves that will make their way in and among the flock. Jude I've told you before, sits down to write his letter. 
And he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude had one idea. The Spirit said, No, I want you to write about this. And so contained in that one chapter letter of Jude, we have an amazing description of things that we must be discerning about. An incredible description of certain persons, Jude writes, who have crept in unnoticed. Who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Be discerning. Unlike the disciples on that Thursday night who didn't know what was going on, we should know. Well, Rick, if they can't recognize the dark heart of Judas, how can we fare any better? We have two things they did not have. We have the indwelling Spirit of God. They did not at this point. It would be after the resurrection when Jesus would breathe on them and say, Receive my Spirit. From that point forward, they would have a new level of discernment that they would not have otherwise. You have that in Jesus. The indwelling Spirit. And we have something else they didn't have. The completed Word of God. We have the whole counsel of the Word of God. The whole Gospel. We have the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament all together. And Paul writes, Philippians 1.9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. You see, love is not stupid. Love is not bland tolerance for anything and everyone going on. doesn't matter whether they love God or follow or live morally or not. Just love everyone. Well, love with discernment, Paul would say. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Man, we're filled with the Spirit, so be discerning. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, what does it tell us about the Word? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So if you're having trouble discerning something, go to the Word. What does the Word say? And is a person, is a situation functioning outside of the Word of God, opposed to the Word of God? Well, then you've got some discernment there, don't you? You can make some sound judgment there. Hebrews 5.14 Paul, I believe, writes, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And I'm sitting on this for a minute because I... Let me put it this way. We no longer have the luxury to, 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 to have casual blindness. We no longer have the luxury to be Christians who are casually blind to the world. What do you mean? When did we ever have that luxury? I grew up in that luxury. This country once had the luxury where you had three pillars. You had the pillar of the family, the pillar of the church, and the pillar of public education wherein the truth of Jesus Christ was taught in our public schools. 
And with the strength of those three pillars going on, well, you could rely a little bit on the other two. You could be a little bit casual. That's okay. Well, they'll learn that at school. Oh, that's okay. They're going to get it at church too. It'll be supported. And then we'll just kind of shore that up at home. We don't have that luxury anymore. Public schools are out. The family is breaking down. The church, the last pillar, the last stronghold, many churches aren't even teaching the Word of God anymore. We don't have the luxury to be casual about discernment. It is time in these last days for the church to wake up, be discerning, be wise, be shrewd, understand the world and the times in which we live, and live by the truth and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, after he went out and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, pause there for a minute. Jesus just said that God is going to glorify Him in Himself. Remember that Isaiah said, God does not share His glory with anyone. God does not give. In fact, the Lord speaking Himself said, I do not give my glory to another. Well, Jesus just said, that's exactly what God was about to do. Glorify Him in Himself. There's only one conclusion to that. And that is Jesus is God. But then he says, and this is so interesting to me, I'm with you a little while longer, you'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, hold on, Lord. I've read ahead. I know what you're going to say just a few minutes later on this same evening. What do you mean? Where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is about to say in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what does he mean right here? Where I am going, you cannot come. Some might say crucifixion. To which I would say... Every single one of the apostles that he's talking to now, remember Judas is out in the night, but the eleven would all die the death of a martyr with the exception of John, and they would try to martyr John. So obviously, they would take up their crosses and follow him. Obviously, it's not the crucifixion he's talking about, where I go you cannot come, because they would all go that same direction. They would all be pulverized for their faith. So that can't be it. So where can't they come? And I think the answer is Hades. I'm going somewhere. You can't come. Nor will you ever go. What do you mean? Because if they're going to be like martyred and crucified, Peter upside down, if they're going to have their heads chopped off, Paul, then they're going to die. But where I'm going, you cannot come. And I believe Jesus is referring to Hades, to Sheol, and it is the one place they would never go. What do you mean? 
Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus describes Sheol. Some people have tried to call it a parable, but Jesus doesn't call it a parable. He tells this story about the rich man and Lazarus, right? And they both die, and the rich man ends up in the torment, and Lazarus ends up in paradise. And Jesus describes this and gives this, I believe, revelation, again, that he does not call a parable. It's the one story of Christ that he doesn't refer to as a parable. I think he's talking about a real legitimate situation here. And he describes Hades as paradise side, torment side, and a vast gulf between, and you cannot cross over from one side to the other, and that's the way it was. That was Sheol. And those who died with faith in God prior to the cross, they would go to Sheol, paradise, to await the redemption that could only come by the crucifixion. Those who died in rejection and rebellion would go to Sheol, torment side. And here's the remarkable thing. The reason why the apostles would never experience that, why where I'm going, you cannot come, is in the three days between the cross and the resurrection, Jesus did something. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Now note that, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which, that is His Spirit, also He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. What? That Jesus died to bring us to God. That those who died prior to the death of Jesus, when He died, He went to get them. And bring them to God. Okay, Rick, you're sounding crazy. Well, let me just let Peter and Paul finish explaining this to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to God. How does that work? Between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus was preaching. Jesus went to Hades, went to Sheol, and there made proclamation. What kind of proclamation? Well, to those who were on the torment side, who had had died in abject rebellion, to proclaim to them, this is the deal. This was the deal all along. To those in the paradise side, well, that's a, a completely different story. Ephesians 4 verse 8, it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. And He gave gifts to men. And Paul says, now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean? Except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth, and He who descended Himself is also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And what Paul describes, and what Peter describes, and what Jesus alludes to, where I'm going you cannot come, is when He died He would go to Hades, and He would empty out paradise. And the souls of all those who were waiting in paradise in Hades for their redemption, now redeemed by the blood of Jesus, would be led captive, a host of captives, and he would take them home to be with the Lord. Which is why Paul also says to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. Which means the moment that Peter was crucified upside down and was absent from his body, guess what? He went straight home to be with Jesus. When Paul's head was chopped off, guess what? 
He went straight home to be with Jesus. When Thomas was beaten to death with clubs, guess what? He went straight home to be with Jesus. And none of them would ever have to pass through Hades, Sheol. Followers of Jesus, neither will you. You will not go to a holding place when you die, if you die before He calls us home. You will go to be with Jesus. Your body will lie in state, as it were. Your spirit will be with the Lord. And then at that moment of the rapture of the church, read it yourselves, 1 Thessalonians 4, He's going to bring with Him, the Bible says, the souls of those who have fallen asleep. But also it says the dead in Christ will rise. The dead, the necros, the corpses will rise. As He brings with Him those who have died, the bodies rise, He glorifies them, puts them all back together in the twinkling of an eye, and they are in the heavens, even as we arrive, the rapture church, to be with them, to go home and be with the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. You get it? That's how it works. And so, where I'm going, you cannot come. Such a simple little phrase. (laughs) Verse 34. He says, A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Put this all together, my friends. The disciple must realize the love of Christ. The disciple must resign our own authority, release all bitterness, represent Jesus, recognize that is discern good and evil in these last days. And number six, the disciple must, the disciple must really, really, really love. Really. Love. Jesus says it's a new commandment. Why? I mean, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says, You love the Lord and you love your neighbors yourself. And in this the entire law and the commandments are summed up, are fulfilled, right? As long as you love God and love people, that's the law. That's what the law causes you to do. So how is this a new commandment? Because Jesus adds a caveat to it. The law was about loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus here says, love one another as I have loved you. What does that mean? It means love your neighbor more than yourself. It means being willing to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor because that's how he loved us. That is a love that goes beyond any commanded love of the Hebrew Scriptures. A love that is so absolutely stunning. That is the love, listen, that is the measure of the depth of my discipleship. The degree to which I love other people is the measure of the depth of my discipleship. Remember the phrase? I hate this one. I'm going to say it. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. And he says, this is what I want you to do. This is my commandment. The new commandment. You love as I have loved you. And just a chapter over in chapter 15, 
He will repeat it. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's how much I want you to love, Jesus says. Not just as you love yourself. More than you love yourself. Self-sacrifice. Verse 38 Verse 38? No. No, verse 36. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, and he clarifies a bit for us, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. See, follow me now, you're going to end up in Hades, and I'm just going to have to release you and take you up with the gang. So let's not go there. You will follow me later, but not now. And Peter said to him, Lord... Why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. (laughs) And Jesus said, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You see, Peter was already crowing with pride. I die for you. I go to the ends of the earth for you. Why does Jesus point out his failure? Why in this moment does he make it clear that Peter's going to completely blow it? Is it just to make him pipe down? Is it to, you know, shut down this cocky rooster? Shh. Peter, you're being dumb. Foot and mouth. It's a good thing I washed your feet because they're in your mouth right now. No. Listen, Jesus did this. Jesus called out Peter's denials ahead of time. So that Peter could know that Jesus knew he was going to do it. What does that mean? Listen, number seven, final one. The disciple must remember. The disciple must remember. What do you mean? The disciple must remember our calling. And this is to me, well, I'll just say it. Your calling precedes your failure. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, your calling came before you blew it. Yeah, we were sinners, and then we were saved and called by Jesus. And since then, we've blown it. Every one of us. And what Jesus is doing for Peter here is absolutely stunning. You must remember your calling which precedes your act of stupidity here, Peter. Before the night's over. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Three times, I'm letting you know right now. And this is in the context of discipleship training. Now wouldn't you think at this point Jesus would say... Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And then you're out on your ear, Peter, and I don't want to see you again. In fact, get out of here right now. I'm not going to waste my time with you. But he doesn't. He says you're going to deny me three times. And then he goes on to continue training Peter for discipleship. He loved them to the end. To the very end. Wait, wait, so... So Peter might say, so you knew I was going to blow it, but you called me anyway back there by the shores of the Galilee? 
You knew I was going to deny you, but three years ago you called me? That's right, Petey. Sure did. Don't forget it. I called you first. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, and I would add cisterns, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Further down, Paul says, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus might say, Remember the keys to the kingdom, Peter? Remember I gave those to you? Remember when I called you by the sea. Remember, Peter, I've entrusted so much to you and I entrusted all of that to you before you denied me. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to deny me. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned again, which means he's going to fail, his faith won't. But his flesh will. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And I believe that Jesus said this, called out the denial, so that every time a rooster crowed in Peter's life, it wouldn't remind him of his betrayal, but of his calling. I was called before I failed. What does that mean? It means I'm still called. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we've got to know that. He's going to love you to the end. He does not give up on you. He knows you're going to blow it. He knows you're going to deny Him. He knows you're going to go into the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing with the wrong thoughts and the wrong motives. He knows. But He's already called you. And He's already invited you into the kingdom. And His call to you and to me by grace tonight is keep going. Just keep going. Because love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. Love never fails. We will. He does not. He loved them to the very end. He loves me to the end. That phrase, telos, to the end, in the Hebrew mindset, means to the end of days. John was indicating in verse 1, he loved them to the end, that is the end of his ministry, the end of his life, to the crucifixion. He loved them to the cross. But the phrase is bigger. He loved them to the end, which means right up to the day of Christ. Which is a much better day than Earth Day. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word tonight. And I pray, Father, first of all, comfort for the fallen. Encouragement for the discouraged and the disappointed. And as I said earlier, if if nothing is heard tonight, may Your love be heard. Your deep compassion. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.